to the Reawakened Mom podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Clampett. I'm so grateful you're here. This show is for you if you find yourself always putting others' needs before yours. You naturally take care of others first. You find yourself in constant comparison with other moms. You put your dreams, goals, ambitions, and passions on hold. If you raised your hand and said, that's me, this show is for you. You are not alone. My goal with this podcast is to show you it doesn't have to be this way. I invite you to join the weekly conversations and learn mom hacks, proven strategies, techniques, and mindset tips to reawaken who you truly are. Some episodes, I'll be here sharing tips on how you can reawaken your home, relationships, career, purpose, self-love, kids, mindset, and more. Other weeks, I'll invite other moms and experts to share their stories and journeys on how they reawakened their life. Mama, it's time to come home to yourself. We need your voice out in this world. So stop hiding, stop dimming, stop following, and start knowing, shining, and leading because you are not alone. Let's reawaken the passion living inside of you together. Hi mamas, it's Melissa. Welcome to another episode of the Reawakened Mom podcast. I wanted to let you know about a new opportunity for us to stay even more connected over this podcast. The other day I was talking to a friend who just added Patreon to her podcast. Patreon is a fun way for us to stay engaged in an online community, kind of like a membership. There are three tiers that you get to decide which one best fits your needs. The membership gets you lots of extras like listen to what you get in the teenager phase. You get a shout out from me, bonus episodes, like extra content from my guests that aren't released anywhere else, community access, requests for topics, guests on the podcast, live chat each month, early podcast release, and a few other things. How cool is that? This is super new for me, us, but I wanted a more intimate way for those of you loving this podcast to get a deeper connection with me and some of my podcast guests. And it's a way to support me as a podcaster and creator so I can continue to put out all of this great content. The link will be in the show notes. I appreciate all of you that have listened so far and I can't wait to actually get to be connected with those of you listening and enjoying. I also want to say I am so proud because I just reached 1,000 downloads. Thank you so much much for all of your support. And here's a review that I wanted to read from LuLaRoe Beth. Be you unapologetically. Thank you for sharing you. I felt connected like we are having coffee together or maybe a glass of wine that I'm not alone and it's okay to be the messy, amazing person I am. I'm looking forward to listening and hearing everyone's journey. This is the year to become who we are meant to be. Thank you, Melissa, for getting the conversation started. Thank you so much for those kind words. I really, really, truly appreciate it. And it means the world to me as a podcaster to have a written review because that's how this podcast gets out to more people, which is truly the meaning of the show. I am joined on the show today with Stephanie Thompson. She is the author of The Day My Vagina Broke and Chief Brave Mama. In 2015, she suffered a traumatic childbirth injury that changed her body and life forever. Stephanie is now on a mission to share her story and start conversations about how we view childbirth and women's pelvic health. She wants to do everything that she can to stop anything like this from happening to her little girl. I hope that you come join us, but I do want to give fair warning that 
Stephanie does go into a lot of graphic detail about her childbirth. So if you feel as if you might be triggered or upset to listen to that part of the episode, you can always skip ahead around 30, 35 minutes and hear the rest of the conversation. But I did just want to let you know because I wanted to make sure Stephanie had the freedom to talk about her journey because it can really help so many other mamas out there. Can't wait for you to listen. All right. Oh my gosh. I am so excited to be talking to my podcast cohort buddy today, Stephanie Thompson. She, when she starts talking, you're going to notice that she has a little bit of an accent. So she got up at the crack of dawn to join us all the way from Australia. So I am so thankful that you are here, Stephanie, and your story and what you're going to share is just going to be so magical and and really transformative to the listeners. I just know it. Thank you, Melissa. It's actually such an honor to be here. To get up early to come and talk to you is a pleasure, a real pleasure. So thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I want to dive right in because I know you were on a mission to share your story and share what happened to you during childbirth and really in order to educate other women. So this doesn't happen to your daughter. I love that. So would you share, do you mind jumping right in and sharing? Tell us your story. Tell us what happened during childbirth that really changed your life. Yeah. I think in a nutshell, Melissa, I felt really blindsided by childbirth because my husband and I went into it. We tried to fall pregnant for five years. So if I go back to my early twenties, I was diagnosed with cancer and I went in to the doctor to say, Hey, I'm trying to have a baby and I want to have six kids by the time I'm 30. And I had this really, I had this plan. It was my plan. And I ended up walking out and she's like, oh, well, actually, let's just hold off on the baby thing because I want to send you for some tests. And in the end, it turns out that I didn't have a baby, but I had cancer. So that was on pause for a little while. And from that moment, they did say falling pregnant could be difficult for you. I wish they kind of didn't say that because I think it might have planted a seed in my head that it was never going to happen. So after five years of actively trying, we started the IVF journey. And uh, thankfully for me, a procedure, a medical procedure and some um, vitamins and some changes to lifestyle meant that by the time I was due to go back to start the medication on the Wednesday, I was pregnant on the Monday. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And I got to call them and say, actually, I don't need to come in on Wednesday because I'm pregnant. And she said, oh, Stephanie, we love that. We hear that actually quite often. So good luck on your journey. Um, And then it was amazing because that pregnancy lasted. And I think uh, only just recently, Melissa, I've started sharing that every single day of that pregnancy, I was petrified of miscarriage. Like really. And I think um, that fear now, because I can look back in retrospect, but I carried that fear to the delivery room of losing her. But I probably didn't even realize how much of that fear was in me. And so uh, when I found out I was pregnant, I wanted everything to be perfect. I was like, right, how do you birth a baby perfectly? Someone tell me, someone someone help me. me, right? Tell me the journey. (laughs) And so um, one of my neighbors suggested, oh, you can go to the public hospital. Because I was a public educator, I am an advocate for public health, public education. And she said, you can go there, but you can ask to be in a program where you just have 
one midwife the entire pregnancy and then her or her team member will be there at your birth. And it sounded really natural and organic and it sounded like the transition to motherhood that you would really hope for. I applied for it, initially didn't get in, but then did. And I felt really quite privileged. I felt like, oh, I'm lucky. Can I ask you a question? So what do you mean you had to apply for it? And especially you said you're privileged. Like, how do you get accepted into it? Like, what? how, how do you get accepted? You're having a baby. Like, doesn't everybody qualify? Like, how does that work? That's a really good question. So here in Australia, and here's one thing I've learned too, that our birthing system is highly political. Um, so we have our public system, which you can go and birth vaginally. And we have our private system where you can birth vaginally or have a cesarean. There's more options. In the public system, we are unable to choose to have a cesarean. You only have a cesarean if it's a medical emergency. When you apply for this program, because otherwise, if I hadn't applied for the program, I would have just gone into the hospital. You sit in a waiting room with about 60 other women and you just wait to be seen by anyone. And every time you go back for every single appointment, you see someone new a new doctor, a new obstetrician, a new midwife, like whoever's there on the day. And you just sit and you just wait. There's no appointment time. And so to me, when I first got into that room of 60 other people, I was like, what is this? You know, and for me, there was another agenda. I had to leave work early um, because I worked along about an hour and a half away. And they say your appointment's at 3.30. We got there at 3.30 and we didn't get seen till 6.30 that night. And so because we must have been last on the list. I thought this is not going to work because my my boss was not happy with me leaving work early. And so basically I thought there's got to be a better way. And apparently when you applied for this midwife program, it's called the midwifery-led practice, when you have an appointment at 3.30, guess what? You get to see your midwife at 3.30. So you would think it would be. It just makes sense. And so when I first applied, I had to go in for about, three hours, I think, and so uh, an extensive amount of questions about your history, your mental health, your, your obviously your physical health, um, your family history. And so at the end of that, they rang and said, no, sorry, we're full. I said, okay. But then I got a call two weeks later saying that someone was, these were the words, someone has been kicked off the program. So here's a spot for you. And I thought, what does kicked off mean? Right. <laughs> is she naughty girl? It's like, I would think, is she no longer pregnant? Like that's like, I would be like, how do you get kicked off? Hmm. Yeah. And I think you're spot on. So bingo, quite sadly, there were either two options, one options, one, she'd either miscarried or two, she was identified as having complications that meant she needed obstetric care. So either way, it was not positive for her. But again, I felt privileged to be able to come in and take that spot either arrogantly or unbeknownst to people who've never had kids I thought oh that's not going to be me I'm going to be fine I've got this I I laughed nervously because I honestly thought that the birth I was going in for it nothing turned out the way I thought so I mean obviously it's a long-winded story because it took a long obviously nine months six years so I got part of the program and I got to meet a midwife and we connected straight away I really loved her she had I think five children of her own. So I'm like, you know what you're talking about. You've been here a few times. And she was no BS as in like, she just told me how it was. And I was really a good patient 
because I didn't want to get kicked off the program. Um, so we went through the entire pregnancy without too many complications. I mean, I had gestational diabetes diagnosed really early. I had an option to manage it with diet. And at the time I was a triathlete. So I was like, oh, I can do that. Uh, easy. Diet yeah. is great. Just tell me what yeah. to do, when to do it. I can follow a schedule. And I did. Again, when you find out later on that when you have gestational diabetes, quite typically, right at the last two to three weeks, the babies get quite big. Mm -hmm. They grow quite a lot. And so I had to go for another scan, but then I had to go back at 37 weeks. At that scan, she said to me, the sonographer said, your baby's measuring really quite big and you've still got three weeks to go. So they're going to have to keep an eye on you. When I relayed that back to my midwife, she said, ah, don't worry about them. They, they always get it wrong. Those scans always do have an error of measurement. And so and I later found out that that is accurate. The scans are not perfect. I didn't worry about it. She told yeah. me not to worry about it. So right. I didn't worry about it. But probably deep down, Melissa, in my core, I was worried about it. Yeah. Someone planted that thought in my head. So I was like, I felt huge. I was like, this is all this baby. So then it got to delivery day. And our midwifery team said, if you feel like you're going into labor, bake a cake. Bake a cake. Yeah. I was waiting for your reaction. <laughs> like literal? Like, I don't understand. Is this supposed to be like a metaphor? They like make, actually make a cake. Yes. Because as a first time mom, when you think you're going into labor, it's probably so early stages that if you've got time to bake a cake and distract yourself, by the time you come into hospital, you're probably going to be more ready to mm -hmm. deliver the baby. That made sense to me. So I felt like, oh yeah, something's happening. I, and I'd had a showing, I'd, I, you know, the mucus plug probably two weeks earlier. So for two weeks every day, I'm like, this is it. I'm, I'm going to have this baby today. What's happening? I'm happy. And nothing happened. But this one day I was like, okay, I think I'm going to bake a cake. And I did. And it was, luckily it was my uncle's birthday. So I was like, oh, perfect. I'll make him a birthday cake. It makes sense. And then by the afternoon, when I was making this, well, when it was cooling down, I said to my husband, I'm baking a cake. You better come home from work. And he said, what? Why? Like he was confused. <laughs> oh, shit. You're baking a cake. Okay, I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> it's the code. I got the code. That's right. <laughs> so he comes home at about five o'clock and... You know, you start getting on your yoga ball, all the things that you were taught. In this system, this model of care, um, it's all really advocated for natural childbirth. That means no pain medication, using movement and breath and meditation. So on top of this, I also went and paid for private childbirth classes that had that same ideology that you can breathe your baby down if you just trust your womanly body enough. That all sounded really lovely to me. And I don't and I don't think it's not lovely for the people who really can do it and succeed in it because it is so much love. The whole belief is beautiful. So when it got to nighttime and dinner time, I couldn't eat anything and then the, the pain started coming in and out. So we called the hospital and they said, Oh, come in, we'll have a look. So I did, and they you're one centimeter dilated. Off you go, go back home, so went back home, leave it at home. So the yoga ball really came out and then you start kind of using, you know, like the shower method, 
hot oh, water yeah. pack and they said use the bath as the last thing so when you're it's funny you want to let to call them pain or contractions it, it's a mental thing you have to call them surges and so when the surges were intense enough to jump in the bath you probably should start thinking about coming back. Once I got in the bath, I'm like, okay, I think it's time. I can't do this anymore. I can't, I, you know, I'd been doing it all day, feeling really tired already. And when I got into the hospital, it was probably, I want to say around 1130 at night, my midwife was there and I just thought, well, you know, like as soon as you see someone's face, you're like, oh, thank God you're here. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. totally relate to that. And it was like, thank God it's your shift. Thank God you're here. Thank God you're not laboring with another mummy right now. Like it's your mind. And I've all the things I had in my head like tick. Yes, you're here. You're here. Great. She said to me when she checked, oh, congratulations. You're seven centimeters dilated now. You're going to meet your baby tonight. So I did the math half an hour tonight. That's, I'm going to have a baby in half an hour. Okay, cool. Let's do it. So I was really pumped. The real labor hadn't started yet. Let's just say that. And anyone who has labored and birthed vaginally can have a little giggle at what I'm saying, because if you've not experienced it, you don't know what it is until it's really there. And um, so they, they checked us into the birthing suite and lovely. We had a bath uh, in the birthing suite. Not all of them do. And felt that, that's again, I felt really privileged. I'm like, yes, I got the room with the bath. Like how lucky am I? This is amazing. Jumped in the bath. And then at one point I kind of like nudged my husband and said, is this it? Really women? What, what are you complaining about? It's not that bad. I mean... You know, I was really confused. I thought, oh, wow, okay, this is easy. Then, you know, shit got real. And I can't really tell you the timeline too much between that bath and then the actual birth other than it was, you know, that was the middle of the night. And then she wasn't born until 10, 28 the next day. So that's a long time. I pretty much can just remember, Melissa, going from the bath to at one stage only being able to feel comfortable standing. And so I was kind of standing over the bed, but then it got to the point where my legs, my little legs were shaking so much and I started vomiting. Mm. No one tells you in any of those birthing books that you can vomit during childbirth. You know, I've read that you can poop when you labor vaginally and everyone worries about pooping. Right. I, I was vomiting where I was meant to be having this baby. And then I, I went into panic mode going, oh, I'm so sorry. And I was trying to clean it because I felt bad for the midwives who were trying to help me. And then I'm creating all this mess. And that too was a trigger, I think, at that point, because going through chemotherapy, I vomited a lot, like a hell of a lot, like for a whole eight hour session on the last one, I couldn't stop. And so I was fearful that something was not quite right. Because I didn't know. I was like, why am I vomiting? Is something wrong with me? Right, right. And the next thing I remember is obviously it was all cleaned up. It was fine. They, they laid me down on my back. And I just remember the intense pain on my back. I was like, oh gosh, it wasn't the vaginal pain. It was the back, the lower back. And they said, look, uh, things are stalling. So we're probably going to help induce you a little bit just to keep things going along and, and keep her coming down. And at that point I was like, I don't know. So I'm trusting you. I, whatever you say, I have to have faith that you are doing the best thing for me. And I believe they did the entire time. I don't think anyone goes in there going, Hey, how can we mess up someone's life today? I don't believe anyone would do that. Once that oxytocin went in and things really ramped up, 
the pain was unbearable. But by this stage, remember, because the whole ideology is a pain medication free birth, it was too late. Nothing, nothing really was going to have time to have effect, like no epidural or anything. Plus, it was really, really drummed into us that an epidural is a bit of a cheats way, like a bit of a failure. And I didn't, I didn't want that or I had that mindset of that end goal. Um, so then basically the next thing I remember is that we went from literally candles and beautiful music and bath with my husband and only my midwife to laying on my back with legs in stirrups and like six people standing in front of me. So I had my midwife and her boss who was, they were talking to each other, but I couldn't understand anything. Then they had a registrar doctor who was there and her boss. And then they had someone for like a pediatric specialist and their boss. I'm like, why are you all here? What What is is wrong? Yes. What's wrong with the baby? At no point does anyone think what's wrong with the mummy. They just think what's wrong with the baby. And my midwife kept saying, she's fine. She's fine bullshit she was fine and I was fine you all wouldn't be here like it was just I then was starting to lose trust basically the the registrar said to me the baby's stuck we need to turn her so she was posterior her face was the wrong way what we need to do um, and I can't remember the order so I but basically we need to do a little cut which I had no idea was called an episiotomy. Again, you feel blindsided because right. I looked up in um, even our government website on the birthing terms. Guess what? Episiotomy doesn't exist there. Why? A major thing that happens quite often. So she said, we just need to do a slight cut and then I'm going to try and vacuum to, you know, to get her out. And I was like, you're the doctor, Whatever. I, by this stage, it had been like over 24 hours of laboring and excruciating back pain. You know, like it's undescribable pain. No matter what words I say to you right now, I cannot tell you to the core how much that was just intense the entire time. Like it wasn't like it was the contractions and then that would go away. It was just, which I now learned is because we were back to back. So her spine was rubbing on my spine because she was mm. facing the wrong way. Yeah. They tried to vacuum her. I only know now through the legal system, looking at my medical notes, they're supposed to in Australia only have two attempts at a vacuum, I believe. And after the fourth one, they stopped because the fourth one, I will preface this with a trigger warning. So for any mums that are listening or pregnant people, what you're about to hear, you might want to turn off because it's pretty intense. Okay. And I think it's, I'm learning how to do that more and more because as I tell my story, I'm not affected by it anymore. It's it, it become quite numb to it. But when it failed the fourth time, they stopped because it tore the skin off her scalp. So she had no, she had this big contusion and it was raw because all the skin had been torn off. Yeah. And so, uh, and I didn't know that obviously at the time. When that failed the fourth time, she said, I think that's when she said she's going to do the cut. Actually, I did get it wrong. Then they did the episiotomy. She's had a slight cut, basically didn't even have time to let the anesthetic work. So I could feel every snip from the front of your vaginal opening all the way to the anus. And then she said, I'm just going to use these forceps to get her out. Okay. You've come this far. Yeah. Really. And it wasn't even like, sorry, I want to clarify that. It wasn't like she said, I'm just going to use these forceps. Is that okay? It was, I'm doing this. Okay. 
because if I don't, I'm going to, and she kind of pointed to the door, I'm going to have to send you for an emergency cesarean. And at that stage, I was like, oh my God, we've come this far. And now I have to go to the naughty corner because I failed. I couldn't do it. I felt like I couldn't do it because they were yelling at me, my midwives, push, push. And I'm like, I am, I really am. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, with what energy you have left at that point and the pain. Um... Yes. And I honestly could not feel anything. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why a bit in a little bit. When they used the forceps, they turned her. So I felt all of that, the baby fully turning. And then she came out. When she was on my chest, we only have maybe one or two photos because there was just so much blood on my face and, and chest. And that wasn't my blood. That was from her head and where she was bleeding. And, you know, you can't look back on those birthing photos and go, oh, that was amazing. I think she was on my chest. And I said, is she alive? That's all I could say. They were my first words. Is she okay? Is she alive? Even though I could hear her crying, yeah. I couldn't register that that meant that she was okay. Yeah. So then we were both in shock. My husband and I just were like, what is that? Yeah. We didn't talk. We didn't say anything. Um, and then obviously she was taken away for check. That registrar said to me, I'm just going to have to do a couple of stitches. And then she disappeared. It's like she did that and then she disappeared. For the, I never saw her again. She never wrote one single note on that delivery. She got the midwife to write them afterwards. The midwife who was at my head, who couldn't probably see what was actually going on. But anyway, so she ended up having to do three layers of stitches. So two internal and one external because the damage was so extensive. And then the midwives said, great, up you pop. We're going to pop you in the shower. So I did that. And in the shower, lost a lot of blood. So they had to put me in a wheelchair. They wheeled me out into the ward, popped me in the bed and said, good night. See you later. And that was it. That was it. Oh, done. you're done. Great job. It was exactly like that. You did amazing. Fantastic. Great birth, Steph. Pat on the back. But in my mind, I was like, was it? I didn't feel like that, but I didn't say anything because I didn't know. And the thing all I could think about when I went to the ward was the baby next to me was crying a lot and waking up my baby. I was like, oh, come on. And the fact I was really hungry and they had no lunch left. They said, oh, no, you've just birthed the baby. The lunch trolley's empty. And so my husband went and got me McDonald's, I think. And the very next day, Melissa, they sent me home. They checked my baby. They gave her Panadol because of the lump on her head and actually checked it. They said it was quite boggy. They're worried about it, but off you go, go home. I wasn't even there for 24 hours and I got sent home in a wheelchair down to the car because I couldn't walk. And then that was it. Good luck. Wow. That's my birthing story. I was, I mean, in that program. So it meant that the midwives came to the house every day to check on you or check on the baby, really. So I think the very next day she had come over all platitudes of amazing, isn't she beautiful? Congratulations, let's weigh her, let's bath her. And they kind of did that type of thing, but they never really checked in on me. I think it got two or three days later and my best friend's a nurse and her husband was an ambulance officer. And she she came over and she said, hmm, you don't look so great. I'm like, I didn't feel great, but I had to pretend I was this new mom. It was amazing. Like, I was like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> a bit tired, but good. And she said, no, you don't look great. And so she got her husband to check my blood pressure. And when he did, he said, sit down, do not move. Like it was so ridiculously low. I was close to passing out. 
Oh and so I knew I felt really unwell, but I didn't, I didn't feel any power to say anything to anyone. And so when my midwife came the next day, I said, oh, I don't actually feel great. She's like, oh, it's just being part of a new mom. It's, this is what happens. And I think it was that next day when all the swelling started co- going down in the pelvic region, I went to the toilet and I could, like, I'm in that generation where you never looked at your vulva. Yeah. You probably didn't even know that you had one. It was all just called vagina. And and you never looked because it was gross. And but I could smell something. I'm like, that doesn't quite smell great. And I didn't, I couldn't look. And so I just got my phone out and had a look. And I'm like, what is that? Oh my God. They're so like they've forgotten they're so stupid. There's another baby coming. Cause all I could see was this really round pink shaped thing that looked like a baby's head. And I thought I was having twins and they didn't know. <laughs> Which, you know, we can laugh now because I was very sleep deprived and a first time mom. And I rang my midwife, uh, my husband did. And he said, I think it's like 7.30 at night after a shower. And he said, oh, Steph's not very well. She thinks she can see something that's not that great. And I, re- I remember hearing her say to my husband, oh, she's fine. She just worries too much. And then I yelled through the door, I'm not fine. I'm not fucking fine. I'm really, and at that point I realized, I've got to start saying, I am really feeling sick here. I'm not okay. I can't sit down. I can't sit on my bottom. I couldn't breastfeed. All of these things that when you get home, you expect to be able to just do as a new mum. The fact I couldn't sit down at all was making it really hard. And she just said, oh, look, if you were that worried about it, go to the GP tomorrow. So I did. And my GP looked at me and he said, oh, shit, what have they done to you? That's I mean, for a doctor to say that, I don't think he said shit, but it makes the story sound better. (laughs) He He might have. He said, oh, God, darling, what have they done to you? And I was like, what do you mean? I don't know. I don't know. What what does all this mean? I was really, really confused. And he said, there's a lot going on there. I'm going to send you back because what had happened was the smell was all of the stitching had started to come undone and it became infected. Even if you wash and clean, it's in that realm of area that's going to get infected. He said, you probably also have a prolapse. But he didn't say too much about that, actually. And I was like, what? What uh, what now? But we didn't have to talk about that too much. It was more the primary concern was the infection and the stitching. I went back to the hospital and saw an obstetrician who said, it's coming undone and you are infected. And here is the second lot of high dose antibiotic. And he said, if this doesn't work in the next two days, you're going to have to come back in. I'll have to put you on the anesthetic and I'll have to pull it all apart and re-sew you up. So that was my welcome to motherhood. Here you go. Really natural, really amazing. Like, come on. I just can't believe that. I mean, it just surprises me how it was just like all brushed under the table. Like she's fine. Like this is normal that that is what happens during a labor and how it should be. Um, You know, that was just so interesting and fascinating to me that it would just continue to be like that. And no one would be like, actually, this is not okay. Like there is something wrong and you should go to someone else. Like, I wonder if it was like, well, then they had that shame that they did something wrong, you know, or like we didn't do a good job. So it was like shaming themselves and they didn't want to do that. I think you're spot on. Very smart woman, because it was actually a point of contention between my mom, who's obviously had children, my sister, who had children, and my auntie, who had four children, all birthed vaginally. And then my cousins, who were midwives, they were all talking 
kind of privately and saying this is not doesn't feel right she's Steph isn't saying much but from what we can see of her doesn't look right and so my mom and sister were very gently trying to tell me or help me but I was so entrenched into this ideology of my midwife program that all my faith and trust was in her and I believed everything she said so when she kept saying it was all normal and fine even when um one particular morning my mum was there and she came for the visit my mum started asking questions and she really didn't like it she said oh the birth was fine and mum's like "Mm." but mum was trying to be really careful not to upset me because she knew my position yeah and like even to the point Melissa now and I look back in retrospect the midwife program advocate for you to have one person in that birthing suite and I mean this is pre-COVID this was six years ago and things like it took two of you to make the baby you probably don't need your mom and your sister and all of those in the room because they didn't make the baby that made sense to me that really hurt my mom because she's like I really wanted to be there but I was like no I've got it I'm good yeah then obviously that caused a bit of a, a thing between us that when she wanted to ask me questions about the birth, I was like, no, nah, I'm just talking to my midwife, mum. You know nothing. And how wrong I was that potentially, I mean, like, who knows? Who knows? If she was there, would it have been any different? Could she have advocated for me having had experience? I honestly don't know. But I do know that my husband felt very, very powerless and very um, uneducated, even though he came to those classes with me, he was there when it was time, you know, my midwife looked at him for a few things and he looked at me and I looked back at him. We were both really exactly the same. We were so clueless. We didn't know. So we just had to trust them, our medical team. That's all we could do. Yeah. I mean, that's what you do. No one, unless you're in, you know, some type of scenario where you've gone to school and you're a nurse or you're in the profession, would you know how, what's right and what's not right? You know, if it's, this is your first time, you would never know if this is how it's supposed to happen or not supposed to happen unless like you've watched crazy movies on it or something like that. But how would you know? I felt like we read every pregnancy book too available at the time. Not one of them ever talks about birth trauma. They just say, do what you're going to do, trust the process. And if it doesn't happen, trust the medical team. So now when I see there's a lot more in social media talking about birth in general, now when I read things that say, oh, trust your instincts, go with what you think, you know, make an informed decision. I was like, "Um, there's no way I could have self-advocated or my husband could have advocated for me or made an informed decision because we were only ever told half the story. Mm-hmm. The rest of it was kept from us for a particular reason because they wanted us to birth vaginally and having a cesarean was only an emergency. So I remember asking in my antenatal appointment, what's a cesarean? Oh, Stephanie, stop worrying. You worry too much. You won't have to worry about that. It's not going to happen to you. Just breathe your baby down. You'll be fine. So I believe that. I I didn't question it anymore. And that's what I feel quite blindsided about that. I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you said that you were going to talk about what happened after. um, And I can't think of the word 
prolapse. <laughs> prolapse. Yeah, I was like, wait, what's the word? What is prolapse? Cause now I'm like, I'm, it's not something that happened to me. So I'm not even a hundred percent sure what that even is. So can you please educate on, on that and um, enlighten us? Definitely. Because most importantly, everything I do really is to support women with prolapse. I think there are some really good organizations working with women in that birth trauma space because women who have all different types of birth can also experience trauma. If it's a cesarean or if it's a vaginal birth, whatever. For me personally, in the beginning, when I first started telling my story, I was also working or trying to help women in that space. But I do realize that it's way above my level of understanding. I'm not a psychologist. And staying with women who've been through things like me was really hard. It was really tasking for me personally. So I kind of shifted to the next, what progressed next for me, which was prolapse. So pelvic, let's start. Pelvic organ prolapse is what it's called. And it's called POP for short. POP. Okay. <laughs> and here's a fact that is going to blow you off your seat. One in two women, so that's 50% of our female population, will experience pelvic organ prolapse in their lifetime, right? 50%. Yeah. So you and I are talking and it's me and not you. That's how high it is. Potentially, those stats are very skewed and it's higher because we are talking about, um, you know, your vagina, which is so taboo, which women don't talk about and therefore don't seek help. So there's a whole group of women who are not counted in those statistics. Potentially, it's much higher than that. Pelvic organ prolapse is where your pelvic floor can no longer support your pelvic organs, such as your bladder, your bowel, and your uterus. Okay. So where they're supposed to sit in a hammock, and I'm showing in my hands, but <laughs> the listeners, it's like I'm holding my hands out for a gift. Um, yeah. <laughs> your pelvic floor is like a sling, so they think of it like a hammock where the organs sit on top. When they can no longer be supported by that hammock or the sling or whatever, they start to descend down your vaginal canal. Now they have grades from one to four. So one is that most women potentially wouldn't even know they've got it, can't feel it, no symptoms, no side effects. Then it goes to stage two and stage three means that those organs are now at the opening of the vagina and probably out a little bit, depends. And then stage four is it are those organs, well, when I say those organs, they do slide down the vagina, but generally it pushes on the side walls and out of the opening. And that's what you see in oh my, my early days. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Like, no, I'm just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so in the early days of talking about my bladder prolapse, I would say, oh, my bladder's hanging out of my vagina. It wasn't the actual organ. It was the vaginal wall that I could see that, but the bladder was pushing that. It's a really hard thing to conceptualize in your mind like what does that look like what is I mean what does a broken vagina look like basically that's it I do want to point out that textbooks tell physicians that stage one and two are generally not painful women can go and have pelvic floor physiotherapy and take them from a stage two back to a stage one quite easily from my experience and talking to real women that's not true Women who have a stage one prolapse can have a real impact on their entire life. So walking, standing, carrying children, sexual intercourse, being able to work, function can be affected depending on their side effects and symptoms. There are other women who have had a stage four 
have lived with it for so long in silence and it hasn't really affected them where they feel like their life has been impacted greatly. I know physicians who have um, seen a woman and it's basically all sitting in her underpants and she's like, what prolapse? What are you talking about? Thinking it was normal. And that's probably the older generation. So I think it's really a good idea that we start talking about this more because I, I work with so many women around the globe and I've had a lady just recently say, my doctor said it's only a stage two and I should be totally fine, but I can't even go to the toilet to poop properly because it kind of all gets intertwined and it's really hard. I said, I know, I hear you. She's like, you're the first person that has said that it can affect me. Everyone else keeps saying it's in my head. That's a huge issue mm-hmm. because quite often and all of my surgeons were male they're male doctors or male physicians who are diagnosing making these calls and saying to women oh just put a pessary in and I'll explain what a pessary is in a second okay I was like I don't know what that is yeah and I think because now we just expect everyone should know about it but I love that you don't know because it really reminds me that just because I know about it and I know there's 50% or more women affected by it, we still have so far to go. There's a long way to go. So a pessary is a round-shaped medical-grade silicon ring, and they insert it into the vagina just to try and hold everything up. So it almost acts like an artificial pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. There are so many different types of pessaries. There's so many different sizes, but that's not the answer for all women. I myself can't wear one because... What I later found out um, through the legal system when we were suing the hospital is that the use of the forceps when they put them in and rotated to get the baby out, whatever was in the way, because you know there's not a lot of space. Yeah. Muscles, ligaments were literally torn off the bone. Mm. So they are called your levator ani muscles. So they sit at the back of the pelvic floor. They were torn off the bone, which means that when you try and put a pessary in, there's nowhere for it to actually sit. There's no kind of shelf. So women who have had forcep deliveries quite often can experience these levator anite avulsions, but not know it. They get an assessment. Yes, you've got a prolapse. Unless that person can do a three or four day scan to see what's going on, then there's no way that they can really diagnose that effectively for women. And so quite often... They say, yes, you've got a stage two prolapse. Here's a pessary or go and get a pessary fitting. Go to women's health physio, off you go. Some women have an option for surgery. There are some surgical options to do some repairs, but here in Australia, and I do believe it's worldwide, they've they've banned the use of mesh, which is what they used to use to try and replace that pelvic floor. And so we're just at the moment, we're left in limbo just to live and keep trying to strengthen every other muscle, like your glutes, your legs, around your pelvic floor to minimize the symptoms as much as you can. And now that's the journey I'm on personally. And this is why I'm talking about this because one in two, then my God, I was left to Dr. Google everything. Yeah. This is what I mean, coming from a privileged background where I got to go and see the top specialists. Mind you, some of them, really expensive. They're generally around that 300 plus mark to go to an appointment. And then you have to obviously get childcare and all of that stuff. There were moments when I couldn't afford those appointments and I had to try and source money from elsewhere because they were vital. Even I think one point 
we were laughing the other day and I think I sold one of my racing bikes because I thought I'm never going to be able to be a triathlete again just sell it and I did and I got to go to that appointment even though I feel I I know my place of privilege to have access to that it wasn't always easy Mm -hmm. it's not always that easy that's kind of prolapse very abridged 101 yeah so much more. Well, and what I was going to ask you, because you were talking about like the symptoms, like of prolapse and you kind of talked about it a little bit, but like, what are like, what are like the main symptoms? Like if somebody's like, do I have this or not? Like, if you're just walking around with it, is it going to the bathroom? Like, you know, what would like a level one be of someone who's like, oh, I'm totally, this is just how I'm made. It doesn't seem different. I'm not in any pain. Like what, what are like the symptoms? Like what are symptoms for that people can look for? I think, and, uh, I haven't had the privilege of ever being a stage one or two. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not too sure how that would feel, but commonly it's talked about women report feeling a heaviness or a bulge uh, mm-hmm. either at the, the top of their vagina or at the opening. They feel like it can be hard to urinate or empty your blood entirely. They, uh, it comes with incontinence, so stress incontinence. If you cough or sneeze and you have a bladder leakage or fecal incontinence quite often for the later stages, women who can't hold their bowel movements at all, um, <clears throat> which is quite severe. Yeah. So just things like, you know, this is another thing, it's like childbirth. They're the kind of things that you read about, like the feeling of heaviness, your body is quite sore. I wish, and I'm working on it, I'm trying to find the words to really describe it because it's more than just a heaviness. Melissa, it's like my entire body is fighting gravity and it's all the organs. Like it sounds exaggerated, I know, but it feels like my whole internal body is trying to exit from my vagina and here I am trying to hold it all in all day and the way gravity works is that when you go to bed at night time and you're laying horizontal they do happen to kind of flop back or move back into place so going to bed is not uncomfortable Mm -hmm. when you wake up in the morning they start at the top and then they kind of just slowly start to descend as the morning goes and it depends on what activities you do as to how much it's going to slide down the bloody thing is not predictable though. Some days I'll wake up and I'll get a good two hours before I feel anything. I'm like, okay, good. Get the kids breakfast, get them off to kindergarten and to preschool, come home. And then all of a sudden you're, you're kind of putting the sooner up on the bed, you're making the bed and it's like, oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. Or, you know, you walk your child into kindergarten and you walk up two stairs like, yep, there you are. And it just happens at different times of the day, generally mid-morning onwards. And as the day progresses, it gets worse and worse. So the heaviness, the bulge coming out of the opening of the vagina, trying to empty your bladder, trying to do a bowel movement can be quite hard because they're both, they're battling for the same space. And so women have to do things like splinting, splinting. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah, this is a whole new world. It's a whole new world for women. And all I did, Melissa, was have a baby. You get like a baby wife and you put it over your thumb and you insert it into your vagina and try and push your prolapse back so that it allows your poo to come out. It gives it space. 
that in itself, when you when you come from somewhere where you don't even look at your vulva, it feels disgusting. And you end up doing so many things like in putting in a pessary, I felt it was just so foreign. And then you would get up and you'd walk around, you could feel it. It's like, oh, and all the while on the outside, what do you do? Hi, mummy's here. Yes, darling. What would you like? A toasty sandwich? Okay. But on the inside, you're like, fuck, I hate this. This is feeling disgusting, you know? And then, of course, um, being intimate with your partner, it's never been the same. I I won't go in. I respect my husband's privacy and I don't generally talk about it a lot. But for me personally, I was petrified that it would feel different for him because if my bladder's in the way, a lot of people say this. So if your bladder's in the way, then what happens? Do you know I had some people say to me, and I'm talking in the medical field, or just have more sex and it will push it back up. Yeah, that's the response. I'm like, what? Oh my goodness. That doesn't so, even make sense to me. I'm like, how, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't work, right? So I think people who say that might, think that it's being helpful and in in the sense it was just it was a nurse that I'd spoke a community nurse and she's like oh yeah it'd be great like you change as a person as a female I lost so much of my identity I could no longer be an educator I was in that field for 20 years because I couldn't stand or walk to do yard duty Mm -hmm. um and having to care for people it's really hard to bend over you can't pick up anything you can't push and pull things because the symptoms are worse I couldn't be a triathlete anymore I tell you what so many times in my head all I can do is picture myself running and not coming back from me from myself yeah and it's hard enough to walk to my letterbox in the afternoon so for me to think about running is a fantasy I've tried, I've tried everything I can trust me. I've tried to get back into swimming. I've tried to just ride a a bike because if you think logically, if you're sitting on a bike seat, there's not many places where it can go beyond the bike seat, Right. but it can go in the little gap in between. (laughs) So if I sit on a chair, that's got a gap in between, I can feel it go through. And I'm like, this is just not humanly right. I can't do this. I've tried other things as well. So what I will say, I'm not going to bore everyone with everything I've done over the last six years, because it's quite a lot. There have been things that are helpful, but I tell you this, I'm never going to stop. No stone is going to be left unturned until a point where I can feel okay physically in my body. Mentally, emotionally, I'm healing. I'm on the journey. I'm not sure if it's ever going to end. I don't see there's a finish line that I have to work towards. I think it's always going to be up and down. Yeah. And I'm okay with that now. I'm okay with that now. But that came with a lot of help with psychology, having an amazing psychologist and working with her. One thing I have found I can do is reform a Pilates. Yeah. I did Pilates this morning. Oh, great. So you know what that is. I know exactly what it is. Wonderful. So part of my pelvic floor rehab is that one of the, the, the studios had a reformer. I'm like, what is that thing? It looks like a contortion. Right. But once I laid down, because it's basically I could do everything horizontal, like, oh, I can do this. So I could build strength in my legs and still do squats, but laying down, like, okay, I feel like I feel better. I can't reverse my prolapse from a stage three or four, but I can feel better. And because if I sit around and do nothing, I know it's only going to feel worse. 
So you've got to take the action to say, I need to feel as good as I can. And so that's what I do now. Yeah. Are you like, can I just go in an aversion and, you know, with my feet in the straps and just see if everything falls back into place? I do it often. No, you're right. You're spot on. So before I could do Pilates, I used to just do that against the wall. Like put a pillow underneath your bottom, lay on it and put your feet up against the wall for like 10, 20 minutes. It gives you a bit of relief, like especially yeah. in the afternoon. My kids have loved it because since they were babies, they could crawl all over me because I was often laying down and I was often sitting on the floor because I couldn't be up and about moving around. And so I used to play with them just laying on the floor a lot. Yeah. Can I ask you, so um, prolapse, is it is it only in women that have childbirth? Like, can it happen to anyone? I'm assuming if it's one in one in two, it's not just when you're having a baby, you can get prolapse. It can happen to anyone at any time. Correct. Correct. So glad you asked that because women who haven't had babies have prolapse. What I have learned throughout this journey, I've really tried to educate myself as much as I can is that pelvic floor dysfunction in general can really happen from when we're really young because in my mind, it's now, like you said at the very beginning, it's now my mission to make sure this doesn't happen to my girl, Elsie. That's what drives me every day. But I'm thinking, well, how do I do that? Like if she chooses to birth vaginally in a midwife program, I can't stop her. That, that's my journey. I can't project that onto her because that's her journey. You know, you can try and talk to them, but essentially it's her decision. And what if the same thing happens again? What happens if they use forceps? However, I, it wasn't that black and white. I couldn't just click my fingers and do that. So I went and found out about it and educated myself, spoke to amazing women who said, your pelvic floor health starts from the time you're a kid. If you have chronic constipation as a child, you are already causing damage to the pelvic floor that constant pushing and straining is stretching those ligaments. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I had that as a kid often, quite often. Mm -hmm. And especially during chemotherapy, because I wasn't eating much, I was always struggling to go to the toilet and had to have medication for that as well. Also, athletes, runners, gymnasts, uh, professional dancers all have extremely tight pelvic floors. So it can go both ways. It doesn't have to be something that is stretched um, like in childbirth. It can also be because it's too tight and it can't relax. So a lot of professional dancers do end up having prolapse. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. How do we not know about, how do we not know this about our bodies? Right. Our own anatomy makes us feel a bit silly, right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, you know, I, I mean, I know I've heard prolapse, but maybe I just wasn't like, oh, what is it? Or I acted like I knew what it was because I was like, I don't want to sound stupid because I don't know what it is, you know, because it's like, oh, I should know what it is because I'm a female and shouldn't you know what's going on with your body or know these words. So I'm wondering if it's, I've heard it before, but maybe I just didn't want to ask what it was. And I just wanted people to assume, oh, you know what it is like, oh yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. I know what that is. I'm a woman. Yeah. Huh. And I, did you also, and I, I thought this too, I associated it with grandmas. Yeah, were, I would think that, or like wearing a diaper, like as you get older, because you can't hold your pee. Like I jump right. on a trampoline and I'm like, I'm, that might've just peed my pants. <laughs> so like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I have an issue. How do, so my question, this is a, 
I'm like, this is a good question. How do how do I want to word it? So how do people find out if they have it? So they, do they go to their, like, we, I would go to like my OBGYN and they would like diagnose me. Like, would they, as a professional, they would say, Oh, I see something. Or should you ask your OBGYN? Can you look to see if I have this, I'm feeling this, I'm noticing this. Like, how do we as women advocate for ourselves? Yeah. In Australia, the first point of call generally is to go to your general practitioner because that you need a referral. So GPs generally don't diagnose here in Australia. I'm not sure about the US. And then they refer you on to your, an obstetrician, uh, gynecologist, or for me, you can also see a women's health pelvic floor physiotherapist. So what they do is they ask you a whole lot of questions and then you answer them based on your body and feeling. And then they usually do an internal examination with their finger or fingers and then they feel around and see what's going on for you. And generally they can say, yes, I can feel this or I'm not too sure. And they might refer you on. One of the surgeons I saw, which I at the time was quite confused, but now I understand he did an examination using his fingers, but I had to be standing up, which makes more sense to me now, because like I said, when you're, horizontal, yeah, when you're horizontal and laying down, especially people who are stage one or two, because they may not feel anything, but yet when you're standing, it feels really different. And I think, I know that there's an amazing woman called Sherry Palm in the US who runs an association for pelvic organ prolapse support. She really advocates for that. She's been doing this for 20 plus years. She lives and breathes this advocacy. I love her and love her work. Now I'm just standing with her to try and keep the momentum of, educating and awareness so that we can there's so many things we can do like creating better education in high school when we teach girls about their periods why would we not talk to them about their pelvic floor and boys have pelvic floors too (laughs) we can't forget them and I like I've always said I know I say I'm doing this for my daughter because the reason is because it happened during her birth that's why but I also have a son and I do this for him too, because one day, well, he cares for me. He cares for his sister. And one day he could have a partner or a friend, a girlfriend, whatever, who could experience things like this too. So it's just as important that he knows as much as what she knows. So I don't think it's a women's health issue. I mean, it's classed as women's pelvic health, but I'm like, it's everyone's pelvic health. My husband needs to know this because it affects him too. In his life, he now lives with a wife who has this invisible disability. I mean, that's another can of worms. It's not categorized or recognized here in Australia as uh, a disability in the sense of there's no support. So I, we have a, a an organization called NDIS for people who have disabilities to receive support like pelvic floor physiotherapy. Um, I applied and went through the intake and she said, yep, great yep, you've got everything. I I handed over all of my medical reports. I got a phone call from them. Well, actually, sorry. They said, oh yeah, we'll send out a package. We'll get you to attach more, more information and then we'll make our decision. Okay. I got a phone call once as I was getting off an airplane. I had the kids and it was all a bit hectic. And she said, oh, look, whoever set your claim, just go and do Kegels and you'll be okay. All right, bye-bye and hung up. What? Does she even know what a Kegel is? (laughs) Wow. 
And then I think two days later, that package arrived. So I never even got the chance to submit anything. And they made the decision that because it's women's pelvic health or it's just to pro, just a prolapse, that it was not going to receive any support. So everything women do with prolapse here in Australia is privately funded. Every appointment I went to to get a pessary fitting was about $250 plus $50 for the pessary. I've tried about seven. Yeah, different types and sizes. I actually went to three clinics. I've been to a public clinic as well where you don't have to pay, but it wasn't a great experience. Yeah, it's it's something that we just think, we know when you see a pink ribbon, you can associate that with breast cancer really easily here in Australia. I'm not sure about the US. Yeah, it's the same. Okay, and the awareness is great. It's amazing because it is a life and death situation. I'm not sure if pelvic organ prolapse is taken seriously enough. And the reason why I say that is because it would be really easy to say, well, Steph, you're not going to die from it. True. My life as I knew it died on that delivery table that day because I've never been able to be the same. And I've worked really hard to, to create a new life. That's great. However, I would say on a weekly basis, I'm a part of a lot of forums and a lot of un underground community groups of women with prolapse, we would see one to two women on the edge, mm. not wanting to be on this planet anymore because no one understands them. No one listens. Um, people don't believe them. And I live with this pain every day and I'm uh, people support me, love me, and they hear me and I, I, I feel great. But for those who don't, they talk about suicide a lot. Mm. So it is life and death for some women. It really is. The thing is too with prolapse, it can be avoidable. If we have early intervention and we have better education, it can be avoidable in some instances. Not all women have to experience it and not all women have to have the same level of pain we do. If we are taught better on how to really care for our pelvic floor and look after it, just like we do our heart health or our mental health now, um, or our breast health you know you get checks yeah if we have that regular in the schedule to have your pelvic floor checked regularly we would have better outcomes for women for sure mm-hmm. you know I mean there is an argument that uh, the use of forceps in some countries they're banned I am not in a position to say they should or shouldn't be banned at all I wish they were not used on me however the alternative if my baby was not okay, I don't think you ever say, worry about me first. You always put the baby first. Yeah. That's our goal. But imagine if we could do both. Imagine if we could have a healthy baby to hold and a healthy mom to hold. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, absolutely. I know it sounds, yeah. Go ahead. What? I'm sorry. I was going to say, I know it sounds airy fairy, but once I learned that the childbirth is really political and people who advocate for natural childbirth really, really are against cesarean sections and obstetricians are generally known for giving cesarean section births too too often. And then they see the effects of women like me who were pushed into having a vaginal birth at whatever cost. Alarmingly, I found out that in, I think, 2005, I think our Australian government wrote a policy that enforced hospitals to push women to have more vaginal births at whatever cost because they want to reduce the cesarean rates, the percentage. And to me as a mum, 
not a medical professional, not anyone else other than staff, say, why? I'm always a why person. So the World Health, Health Organization wants to reduce cesarean rates. Why? Right. Is, are cesareans not okay for mums? Are they not okay for babies? Where's that information? Is it about money? Yeah. Because we know cesarean births are way more expensive than vaginal births. However, I'm bearing the cost of that vaginal birth myself. And so is our community and so is our whole economy because I'm not working full-time anymore. So I'm not paying taxes full-time. Like it's, it just doesn't yeah. seem to make sense. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to me at all. No. And, and I, I'm a why person too. So I'd be like, why? Like, what, what is the point in the people making the decisions? Like, are they the men, you know, is the government mainly men and, and they're not even women making the decision for, for women bodies. And what is, what is the point? Like if, if it's not healthy or if a, if a mom wants the choice to do that for whatever reason, I have to go back because, so you have a son. I do. How did that happen? Like, I'm sorry. I'm just like, wait, can you like take a minute and like go back 20 minutes and talk about that? How, especially with everything that you just talked about, like how you have a son, like, so how did you, how did you deliver? Like, how did this happen? That's an amazing pickup. Well done. <laughs> because it is the number one question that women with prolapse ask me, how do you have another baby? Not so much. How do you have sex? Um, that's part of it. You know, like if they feel comfortable enough after talking about how to deliver another baby, they then say, well, how did you even fall pregnant? How do you have sex? It's really uncomfortable. And so we talk about that. We were one and done. It's called <laughs> one yeah. baby trauma done. And so it was only during the process of talking with, um, I think the third surgeon, when he said to me, I could potentially do a repair. This is before we knew the extent of the damage, by the way. He said, I could potentially repair your prolapse with surgery, but the caveat is you have to be, have completed your family and not have any further pregnancies or childbirth. And I'm like, why? He said, because it will all come undone, all the surgery. And then to be able to do it the second time will, will be hard with scar tissue. I'm like, okay, well, we're not having any more kids. That's fine. Let's do it. Look at yeah. And he said, I just want you to go and think about it for the weekend. Talk to your husband. He was there and just make sure. I'm like, okay. So we talked, I think the car ride was two hours home. We talked all the way home. We're like, no, we're good. We're done. Yep. Okay. Done. I just want to get back to normal. I just want to go back to running. And so when we went to pick up my daughter from my mom's house, she was kind of sitting near the back door and, you know, like and the sun's coming in and I looked at her and I'm like, oh shit. Okay. We don't want another baby, but what if at any point she wanted a sibling and not that it's her choice, right. but we just never thought of it. It was never introduced to our thought pattern until that moment. And we have siblings. We love big families. Remember I wanted six kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so then it just started a different conversation. We were then not sure. Oh gosh. Okay. The thought of having another baby scared the hell out of me and so what I did instead of making a decision based on feeling I went and became informed so we asked that surgeon can I even carry another pregnancy to full term how do you labor a second baby is it going to cause more damage to me all of those things we also then got his responses and took it to a second opinion with an obstetrician asked the same set of questions we then took it to a midwife and us, because I really wanted to make sure I got the whole picture this time. Like I wasn't going to just get one person's version. 
not the you know anyone who's got an invested interest a vested interest like a surgeon is probably going to tell you it's okay and so we got a whole lot of opinions spoke to my cousins and everything and then when the consensus was absolutely you can be pregnant again and carry a baby to full term and absolutely you can birth again because all the damage is done in fact it could be easier for you this time because there's not a there's not as much to try and get through <laughs> unfortunately yeah it made sense to me I'm like okay well yeah that sounds logical there was only one surgeon so we saw another surgeon who said who was really smart actually he said you can do all of that but you haven't if you struggle now with one baby think about what it's going to be like to have another one and I yeah okay yeah yeah great okay I never thought about it mm-hmm. I just I just went okay yeah majority says yes I've made my decision I'm okay with it however because it took so long to fall pregnant with her I think it was October was her birthday she was turning one I said if it doesn't happen by December let's just call it let's not live our life in IVF land and wondering and every period crying thinking yeah. and carrying or, or not being pregnant let's just leave it we'll be okay and we both were totally fine with that we said yep that's that seems like a fair and reasonable plan like you know and then the next month I think no it was November December I was pregnant and it really just took her first birthday party celebrations of having some alcohol and feeling quite relaxed (laughs) that's the truth of it seriously (laughs) a bit too relaxed Uh... and so this next pregnancy I knew because of the past trauma I had to do everything in opposition to the first. So I chose not to do the midwife program the second time. I went and found an obstetrician in a private hospital. Again, thanking the lucky stars of my privilege in all those years in education, I had private health insurance. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has access to that. And I had that, that option. We did some shopping first. We did go obstetrician shopping because I thought, no, I've got, I've also got to find someone who understands my journey. Who, who can care for both of us, my husband and I. We went to one obstetrician. He said he's supposed to be the best in town. And he said, oh, you know, you're only seven weeks. Let's just see if this baby makes it first. What? Yeah, for real. I'm like, you're not my jam. Goodbye. Here's yeah. my 250 bucks. I'm never seeing you again. So this time around, you do feel more empowered to make those decisions. You're not in the clutches of a system where you just have to be a good patient. I I literally said to the receptionist, she goes, oh, do you want to make another appointment? I said, no, he's not our guy. Thank you. Here's my payment. Have a lovely day. Yeah. In my head, I was like, no effing way. Are you coming near me? Or my baby that may not make it. (laughs) It's like, have you ever met, have you met the doctor back there? Like, have you met, have you met that guy? Is he your doctor? Like, hello. Oh gosh. Oh, geez. When we did find our guy, who I actually had seen him in the public hospital when I had to, he was the one that was going to do those repairs. He sat with us for two hours. He heard my whole birth story. He was like, he was very professional. He actually didn't say too much about the hospital at the time, but he just said, okay, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That's all I wanted was someone to say, it actually wasn't normal. Yeah, That's actually not how childbirth goes for a lot of women it happens to women yes and it's unfortunate yes but generally speaking it doesn't happen to everyone yeah it doesn't have to be that way 
Yeah, and the word normal is ridiculous anyway because it's much better to say common. It's yeah. known, you know what I mean? So he said to us, um, and every appointment I saw him was at least an hour and a half because I was, I gave myself the permission to take my notepad of 50 questions and I sat there and as he answered them, I wrote the answers because I knew when I got home, if I had to expel this fear that I was carrying, because it was even worse this time, thinking that I can't go through this trauma again, I did that. I did things that I felt were going to help me get through this. We made, I don't, do you have birthing plans in America? Yeah. So the first birthing plan, I think is what got me into the hot water. It was a pre-filled one from the birthing classes that was like natural birth, no medication. And I just signed it. I, I willingly, blindly signed that thing. This time he and I, and my husband created a, a map instead of a plan that you have to stick to. It was like, Hey, if this happens and we might talk about this and if that happens, we talk about that. So it wasn't set in stone. So expectations couldn't be disappointed. And he said, I said straight away, right, coming to birthing, I have to have a cesarean this time. I can't do this. I'm not, I'm not doing that again. And he yeah. was the first person that said, do you know what a cesarean is? No, I was never allowed to talk about it in my last pregnancy. So no, I actually don't. All I know is that you, you cut your tummy below the bikini line, you get the baby out and then you sew it up. And then I can't drive for six weeks, right? He's like, hmm. Let me explain it to you. He walked me through it. Like he literally held that space for me and said, we do this, then we do that, then we do that. And I was like, oh, okay. It's not as easy as I thought. Actually, it's not the easy way out. I don't think it's the cheats way out now. And then he said, and then vaginally, this is how this is how it could go. Let's, the decision's yours. And I was still hell bent on a cesarean. I think up until maybe the eighth month. And then I saw my psychologist and then I went back to him. I said, could I try vaginally? And if it doesn't work, then would you do a cesarean? He said, at any time, you just tell me. I said, even if nothing's wrong with the baby, even if mentally I'm not okay, he's like, yeah, we can do that. So how amazing is that, right? right. So when it came to it and we started uh, laboring vaginally and I was checked in for um, an induction because I chose that it was my option to not go into labor at home with a one-year-old and my husband at work and then have a panic like oh we need to get care for her and he has to come home and what happens if the baby comes out and my bladder falls out I honestly Melissa was so scared that knowing that my bladder is sitting at the vaginal opening where's the baby gonna go like the baby's gonna push it out and then my internals are gonna come out right Wow. That's, the, that's the visual. So then we talked about that for a long time. And he said, um, and I said, could I just come in and just labor here? And so I opted for an induction. And then I went in in that morning and checked in at 6am. And it felt like I had autonomy, not control. You can't control childbirth, autonomy. Like I am here because I'm ready. The baby was ready. And he let me, uh, oh, he didn't let me, he suggested. <laughs> How silly that could we just maybe we'll start the process slowly. So he didn't want to just go straight in and let me go from naught to hundred too quickly. So we spent kind of half the day doing it in the hospital room, had waters broken, 
consented the whole time. I felt really comfortable. And then I opted for the oxytocin again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the drug that helps the baby come along because I didn't, another fear was having that maternal fatigue that I had the first birth after 27 hours or whatever. I didn't want to have to be at the point where I was vomiting and shaking, having no strength, not, no ability to talk for, and advocate for myself. And so I think the whole birth was probably five hours and three big pushes once I'd been in the shower and come out and the midwife was there and she and I said, I think it's coming. I feel like I need to poo. She's like, oh, that's a good thing because this time I could actually feel him and I felt when the contraction came, I'm like, oh, I want to push. Like I could feel it this time. Yeah. It was really different. And she said, oh, I don't think you're quite ready just yet. Anyway, she called him in and he's like, oh, he's really hairy. He's got lots of hair, which Aww. meant he was there. And he yeah. said, let's meet him. Let's do it. So three big pushes and he was out. And this time, Melissa, he was on my chest. First thing I said was, is he okay? Again. Yeah. But then my husband and I looked at each other and we just cried. We cried so much and so much happy tears because that was childbirth. That was it. That is exactly the ideology we were told and sold the entire time. I'm like, okay, that's it. Mm. Um, I'm getting goosebumps. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. And there was no further damage to my pelvic floor. I had checks before and after and they measured pretty much identical. I, I'm so glad I trusted them, informed myself along the way and had this healing birth experience. Yeah. I wish that for every woman who's had birth trauma, by the way, if that's their choice, because Maybe had I not had that, I would have lived with that only one, one experience to go off. And now I feel like I can confidently say to my children, childbirth vaginally can actually be really beautiful. It yeah. really can. Yeah. You know? Oh my goodness. I have loved this so much. I know we could like talk forever. I could just listen Sorry, to I you. I talk a lot. <laughs> but you have a lot of great information um, and knowledge to share. And I think, like you said, it's very important for women to, you know, everyone to understand and be educated on or start learning about it or listening to, about it and not just putting it to the side. So I think it's, it's super important. Is there anything that you haven't shared that you just, you know, have any advice or anything for the listeners today? I think that if you have not yet had a baby, it can be really hard to digest information. So you've just heard my journey. I don't want it to scare you if you haven't had a baby. The reason why I say this is because I want it to scare the people above us, those men or those politicians who are charged for caring for us and writing those policies. They need to feel scared by my story because what does fear do, Melissa? It creates action. If we do nothing and we keep our policies this way, and we allow women to birth this way, then nothing's going to change for my LC and nothing's going to change for your listeners. And the other thing is, it's really hard to take in a lot of information from books and podcasts of other people's journeys when you're not yet pregnant, because there is that level of arrogance of, or, or ignorance. Oh, that's not going to happen to me. I'm good. I, I know what I'm doing. It's okay that we don't know what we're doing. If you haven't had a baby yet, it's okay to say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to hear it all. 
Yeah. And then make a decision. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And so one question, we didn't even dive into anything else about your life, but this is, this is your main focus and this is your story and your journey and you're advocating. Um, and so I love it so much, but I want, my last question for you is as women, we do not celebrate ourselves enough right? We celebrate right. everyone else, but we do not celebrate our ourselves. And with upcoming, you know, holiday of Valentine's day, like I'm looking at it as like loving myself more. So I want to know, what do you love about yourself right now? My passion to make sure that this doesn't happen to my girl. Pretty proud of that. <laughs> I love that. You're making me teary. Oh, no, I love that. It. So yeah. beautiful. That's awesome. Thank I'll never so stop. I'll never stop. Thank you. Thank you for your advocacy and for sharing your story and your journey. And, you know, and I love that, you know, you had another baby. I just love that, like twist in the story. Like, you know, it's like a movie. It's like, oh, I didn't see that coming, you know? Um, it's, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. How can, how can people find you? You know, you have a podcast, you wrote a book, like where's the best place for people to, to stay in touch with you? Well, look, I think everything you can find that we do is just on our website, which is the three W's at bravemama.com. That's B-R-A-V-E-M-U-M-M-A.com. I would love to yeah, send people there and, and hear all about you. And you do have a podcast, which is amazing where people can go and, and hear more of you talking about this to other women as well. So I just want to say thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. Thank you, Melissa. I cannot wait to have you on the lowdown with Brave Mama because you've got an amazing story to tell and I can't wait to talk to you too. Oh, thank you so much. See you soon. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I believe in the power of connection and community. If you loved this conversation and have a friend who you believe needs to hear this, please share this episode with them. It could transform their day. Share it on Instagram and tag me at Melissa Clampett. I'd love to shout you out and say hello. I'm so grateful for all of you listening and sharing. Follow this podcast on Spotify or subscribe on Apple. Your support means the world to me. If you found inspiration today, take a second and leave me a five-star review so more moms can find this podcast. I'd love to continue the conversation with you in our free Facebook group. It's linked in the show notes because who has time to write all that down? I believe in you, mama. I see you. I hear you. I'm Melissa Clampett, and this is the Reawakened Mom podcast. <laughs>